Would you all please welcome me in joining Victor Davis Hanson to the stage. Thank you very much. I'd like to talk uh, just about 35 minutes, not just about George Patton and the tragic view, but our strange and ambiguous relationship in the United States between generals and politics. You know, we've had 12 presidents that were generals, but none of us really know any of them. I mean, who cares whether um, Chester A. Arthur was a general? We, we remember that Harrison and his grandson or Pierce or Taylor, uh, but most of the generals we don't. Andrew Johnson, who cares that he was a brevet brigadier general? We have four that became presidents. With the exception of Jackson, they were pretty much apolitical. By that I mean Grant was a unionist more than he was a radical Republican. And I think both Democrats and Republicans approached Eisenhower, and no one was quite sure uh, what side he was on, and Washington, of course, was the father of our country. But we have had, if we haven't had overt, and we have, by the way, we had three generals, remember, working for Donald Trump at one time. General Kelly, the Chief of Staff, General Mattis, Secretary of Defense, and H.R. McMaster, uh, the Lieutenant General, was a National Security Advisor. I have a feeling two out of the three of them either didn't vote for Trump or won't vote for him next time. <laughs> So I guess they're called bipartisan or apolitical. But we have had ideological generals. I don't know if ideology is the right word for it, but we've had generals who connected what they did on the battlefield with a larger view of human nature. And I guess we would call it the tragic or pessimistic view that we are born into this world pretty despicable or evil, and religion and culture and civilization save us but it doesn't always reach everybody. And there's always going to be people who want to take things that are not theirs, whether on the personal or national level, or they're psychopathic and they like to kill people. And it's the duty of certain people among us, this view I think some generals have, that they have certain talents and they spot these people and they're willing to do what it takes to protect the innocent from them. And out of that ideology, they also develop a conservative or reactionary political view. And you think of MacArthur, but in our own history, think of William Tecumseh Sherman, Curtis LeMay, and you know Matthew Ridgway. And they don't end up well. I mean, they have a dark view of human nature, and we're a therapeutic, sunny society, an upbeat society. And when we're done with them, we're done with them. They provide a useful service. Sherman said, I will not run for office, if nominated, I will not accept the nomination. If elected, I will not enter the presidency. And people thought to this day that he was a barn burner, that he was a terror. I see the word terrorist in Sherman. Sherman had a philosophical view, a tragic view, that they were in an existential war, and a lot of innocent people were getting killed, and the people who had precipitated that war, he called them the Chevalier class in the South, should not function with impunity at home. And so when he went to Atlanta and the March to the Sea and the March to the Carolinas, if you actually do the terrible arithmetic of how many people he killed vis-a-vis -vis that summer of the Army of the Potomac, 
with Grant locked with Lee. There were far fewer dead, but he did something that was unspeakable. He destroyed property and he humiliated an entire class and he developed an ideology and explication of what he was doing and why they deserved it. And that, that was intolerable. And to this day, when Grant can have, can have been responsible for some of the most bloody battles in the history of uh, American wars, but Sherman has an asterisk next to his name. The same is true of another general. I mean, we all love Hap Arnold. We hear Tui Spatz, Doolittle, but when we say Curtis LeMay, we stop. Some of you think the cigar. We don't ever hear that he had Bell's palsy on a record flight, set the distance record in 1937 in a B-17. On the way in the flight, he got Bell palsy, stuck a cigar there to, stop the, to absorb the dripping of saliva. So it wasn't some Hollywood gimmick to be tough. It was a way of trying to di disguise a disfiguring ailment. But he ended up after the war, remember, uh, as the model of Buck Turgenson and Dr. Strangelove. And then during the Cuban Missile Crisis, people caricatured him because he wanted to be pretty tough with the Soviet Union. And he ended up uh, running tragically with George Wallace as his vice president candidate, third party, American Independent Party in 1968, we forget that he actually tried to convince Wallace not to run on a segregationist or racist ticket, and he was one of the first green candidates we've ever had. But we had this image that LeMay said that it would be inhuman for a million people to die invading the mainland of Japan, and he could do it through bombing, and he inherited the B-29 billion dollar program $2 billion bigger than the Manhattan Project, and they had no results from China, India, or from the Marianas. And he took this wonderful, high-precision, high-altitude bomber that could fly up to 28,000 feet, and he took it down to 5,000 feet, and he basically created a four-engine dive bomber and filled it with 20,000 pounds of napalm, and in 90 days burned down 65% of the urban industrial area of Japan. And he was adamantly opposed to the 509th Composite uh, Bombing Group because he didn't think the atomic bomb was necessary. In other words, he thought that he could, as he said, render uh, Japan pre into a pre-modern state. Had the war gone on, he had plans to use four airfields from Okinawa and to bring, remember the war in Europe had ended in May, and there were 10,000 four-engine B-24 and B-17 and Lancaster bombers that were idle, another 8,000 two-engine bombers, B-26s and B-25. He was going to aggregate them with 2,500 B-29s from the Marianas, triple the mission capacity, because Okinawa was a third of the distance, and finish off the rest of the uh, Japanese industrial sector. It's pretty nightmarish. Scenario, but the idea that he was behind all that, and remember he said, if the, we lose a war, I'll be tried as a war criminal, was that we're not going to send people who had nothing to do with this war from Nebraska and Missouri and invade the mainland when people who are actively killing 15 million people in China are going to escape uh, a rendezvous with judgment. That's what he said. Matthew Ridgway inherited... Uh, in late December of 1950, a losing Korea, Korean War. Remember the Chinese across the Yalu? We had gone up in November, MacArthur had, and um, General Walton 
Walker. As you go north, you know, the peninsula widens. In November, the weather worsens, and the proximity to China decreases. And the F-80 was not able to provide air support against a MiG-15 for B-29s. So essentially, we sent 150,000 people farther and farther from their supplies and closer to a million Chinese soldiers, and we didn't have adequate air cover in the height of winter. And when they broke across, it was the longest military retreat in U.S. history. And MacArthur was relieved, and Ridgway, who had never been to Asia, he was an expert in Central America, and of course he was commander of the 82nd Airborne. He created basically the 82nd Airborne in World War II. He, 50 years old, he parachuted into Normandy, distinguished record in World War II. I suggest that if any of you have heart trouble, don't despair. He had a heart attack and was told he had to be decommissioned and go back into civilian service at 54 at the end of the war, and he lived to be 98. <laughs> so. Don't despair. But in any case, he wore a, a little medical kit here and a hand grenade here. They called him Old Iron Tits. And uh, he walked the battlefield. He said, find them, fix them, and kill them. And he said, don't despair. We're going to take Seoul back. They took Seoul back by March. Uh, the B-29 napalm and artillery killed uh, as we heard today, quite correctly, killed about a million Chinese. One reason that China did not want to invade in Vietnam and is because of the terrible losses that they hid from uh, historians in the West uh, that, they in, that were incurred by Ridgeway uh, in that counteroffensive. And then Ridgeway got, a, after s basically saving and taking back Seoul, what was the reward for it? Eisenhower, when he wrote his memoirs, said that Matthew Ridgway didn't take Seoul. Crusade in Europe, it's, it's there. He didn't even get, he hated him so much. And when Johnson wanted to go, Eisenhower wanted to go in Vietnam, he called in Ridgway, said, don't do it, you can't win the land war in Asia. Johnson went into Vietnam and he thought, it's time to get out, I'll get that old Ridgway, he'll give me the same advice. And he said, I gotta get out. Ridgway said, can't get out. And he said, why can't I get out? And he said, there's only one thing worse than losing, a, only one thing worse than getting into a bad war, and that's losing it. So he gave people advice, and he talked in a certain manner. He was married three times, which was a no-no at that time in the top echelons of the American general. And uh, he didn't end up well. He didn't get the type of credit that he should in the way that LeMay didn't and the way that Sherman didn't, which all brings us to George Patton. I wish I could say that he was a, um, a superb, he had superb character. He did in many ways, but I, I think in many ways he was Trumpian, if I could, and that's not meant as a criticism gratuitously. By that I mean he could be gratuitously cruel to people. He, as you know, slapped two soldiers in Sicily, one of which, one of whom probably had malaria. We know had a high temperature. He was resented by uh, most of his peers because he was from one of the wealthiest families in America. Mount Wilson in L.A., that was his grandmother, Wilson, the Wilson family. His father was the city attorney of L.A. and owned a thousand acres in Pasadena. He was fabulously rich on his own family side, and then he married in to the Ayer Pharmaceutical Company, Frederick Ayer's big empire. So when 
the image of American officers was Omar Bradley and Eisenhower and Lucian Truscott and Wade Haslip, all of these great people from the hinterland of America. Here came Patton from California playing polo with his own yacht and a stable of horses all during the Depression. And he had been in the 1912 Olympics. He came in fourth. He might have won the pentathlon. He claimed that he was such a good shot that each time he shot, he put the bullet right through the prior hole, and the judges didn't understand that. <laughs> and he may have been right. But if you follow his career through the 20s and 30s, up until Pearl Harbor, it was characterized by absolute brilliance. He was the first person to see that the Christie tank in 1919 had the best suspension and the Americans should go for it, and yet we didn't do it, and that was the model that the T-34 Russian tank adopted. He, under, he designed the U.S. cavalry saber. He also designed it, the first U.S. tank suit. They called it the, the, you know, I think it was called the Green Arrow or the Green Lantern. It was kind of silly. It had a gold helmet and green pads and gaudy boots, but it was built to be comfortable a jumpsuit. He, and uh, in this entire process, he learned, or I shouldn't say he learned, he developed U.S. armor tactics. 1940, in uh, war games in Louisiana, he captured the senior General U. Drum. You, you may have seen uh, The Dirty Dozen, that movie, that old movie about capture, how they played dirty. That was basically based on Patton's uh, war maneuvers, well, how he went on a 400-mile goose chase, they thought, and ended up capturing the Red General. He was on the blue team. And he did that two times. Then he went down and got into Indio, out in the middle of nowhere, and set up an entire desert warfare complex and taught Americans with inferior tanks, light chaffy tanks, or uh, inferior Lee tanks, the elements of armor, pursuit, and breakthroughs. The point I'm making is that when Pearl, and he, as he was 55 and he was still not a, a brigadier general. People hated him because he was, drank too much. There were periods in his life when he womanized. He played polo, as I said. He was accident prone. He uh, lit a gas lamp to look at his eye and it blew up and burned his face. He accidentally stabbed himself. He would, uh, he broke, he in a horse accident, he broke his leg, he got phlebitis. He was always, and of course he died in a freak accident as well, so he was known as injury prone, reckless, rich, ostentatious, loud, and yet he spoke French, read German, and was highly educated. The point I'm getting at is that he enunciated or he articulated a worldview of war, and it was similar to his contemporaries like LeMay and Ridgway, and also very Sherman-esque. He was a big admirer of William Tecumseh Sherman. And he basically said that democracies are therapeutic societies, and we don't train people, thank God, to kill people. But there are people in the world who do. And when they do, they need people like George Patton, who's part of and yet not part of a democracy, that understands the evil mind and can make soldiers for brief periods of time have the training and the courage and the fortitude to stand up to the Hermann Goering division or Focke-Wulf 190 pilots or U-boats. 
And that was his principle. And then you would kill these evil people and you protect the innocent. And he said that. And we, we don't like people to say that. When Colin Powell said, what's your strategy for the first Gulf War? He said, we're going to find the Saddam's army. We're going to cut it off and then we're going to kill it. And people got very angry. Why did he have to say kill it at the end? <laughs> Remember when we killed Baghdadi, Nancy Pelosi was bad that Trump said that. Why did he kill everybody? And then when Trump said, we're going to get rid of these monsters and these animals, M13, she said, they're all God's creatures. So it's, that therapeutic alternative is deeply ingrained. And it's very hard for societies like us to mobilize against these, these perceived threats without these types of people. So when we were ready after Pearl Harbor to fight, the obvious choice for our first engagement was George S. Patton. He had just been made, uh, right before Pearl Harbor in October, he was promoted to major general, two-star general. And yet, when we had Operation Torch, the November 1942 landings in uh, Northwest Africa, he was not chosen to lead the, he, uh, the entire project of Torch. He was given just the Western Command, 30,000 troops. The most incompetent, useless general in American history, Lloyd Frydenhall was. And Eisenhower wrote a report and said, he looks like a general, he breathes fire, he's our man, I've never been more impressed. He would swagger around, he would pound his fist, and he didn't know anything, and the result was, as, as you know, the worst defeat in American history really was, or at least the most humiliating, the Kaiserin Pass, where Rommel destroyed an entire uh, brigade, 3,000 missing, 400 dead, 600 tanks, just Frydenhall, where was he? 50 miles back, dug in in a bunker, probably drunk. When it was time to take over Second Corps, everybody thought Patton will get his chance, and yet Eisenhower asked General Harmon to do it, who turned down and said, this is pretty embarrassing. Patton deserves it. So Patton took over immediately at uh, the Battle of El uh, Gadar, Gazar, he won uh, the first battle the Americans had won in World War II. And he wanted to continue ahead of Second Corps. And then Omar Bradley, his, he had a very strange relationship with Bradley. And the movie was quite, uh, I, I, I think, I think the, was quite, quite misleading about the attitude of Bradley toward Patton. But Bradley then was given command of Second Corps. And Patton was supposed to plan Sicily. You would have thought that too many people had died in North Africa needlessly without giving Patton the main uh, responsibility for the invasion of Sicily, Operation Husky. And yet, we deferred to General Montgomery. They both, both the Seventh Army and the British First Army landed in southern Sicily. Everybody knew what the aim was. It was to get to Messina, two miles from the Italian coast, cut it off, and cut off 400,000 troops. And Patton looked at his assignment. It was to stay to the left or west of Montgomery and protect his flank and be stationary, basically, and give Montgomery the a chance to speed right to Messina and then trap the entire Italian and German. And of course, he knew Monty wouldn't do that. Monty was a great general and a set piece, but he was not a pursuer. And he didn't pursue. So what did Patton do? He went all the way to northwest to Palermo, then made another right turn, broke orders, and got to Messina before Montgomery. <laughs> and of course, didn't, well, didn't get there in time to trap the Germans. But 
He became very famous after that. And you'd think that at that point, everybody knew that Overlord was being planned in conjunction with the Italian invasion, that he would get a supreme command. He slapped two soldiers quite despicably. He went into a hospital. He was mad because the absentee rate of soldiers for what we would call post-traumatic stress syndrome, what was known then as shell shock. One officer had a... Um, there were three officers who watched the first slapping incident. The person had malaria when he was slapped. Second one, two weeks later, he had some ailment, whether it was a fever or it was just stress, we don't know, but he slapped him. In this period, one of his armored companies was on a bridge. There was an Italian farmer with two mules. They were being strafed. They didn't want to run over the mules. It was a very narrow bridge. Patton went up, put, took out his 357 on his right, on, right hand, and he had a 45 Colt the other, and shot these two mules and had them thrown over the bridge. And this was considered terrible. Think of this therapeutic mindset. Here you have a whole column stopped, and the papers and journalists are angry that Patton shot two mules and threw them over the bridge to facilitate uh, the company getting out of a strafing attack. But in that case, that was a very important point, though, because he obviously should have been given one of three possible appointments. One would have been overall commander in Italy, and that went to Mark Clark, who we know mostly from uh, falling for the German gambit, where Germany basically, the German forces under Kesterlina, basically allowed us to take Rome as a way to escape an encirclement, and they knew that Mark Clark of all journals would want to go into Rome, especially during the D-Day operations, and get some glory, and then that would give them a chance to escape the encirclement, and they predicted perfectly. Patton wouldn't have done that. On the Anzio earlier in January, that was a very tricky, remember that was a tricky amphibious operation to land at the main port, or near the main port of Rome. People didn't know whether we could do it. Surprise, we had a beachhead. There were very, only one uh, German battalion there for about 24 hours. General John Lucas sat there for five days until the Germans made an entire semicircle of heavy artillery and armor against the Patton would not have done. He was not given either appointment because he was under suspicion for slapping two soldiers. He was not saved, as is often seen in the movie and in popular literature, by Omar Bradley, who wanted him sent home. He was not saved necessarily by Eisenhower. His, his letters of support were post facto. It was not even George Marshall. It was Henry Stimson, Secretary of War, who saw, said that we can't win the war without this man, or at least we can't win it at a cost that we can afford. So then we come to the big commands decision, the planning of the invasion of Normandy that had been talked about since 1942. Americans under Marshall had told the British we want to invade in November of 1942. Even they, after they admitted what had happened in North Africa, thought that was a mistake. Then we wanted to go in 43, and then after our problems in Sicily, they said that was why. Then we wanted to go in January of 44, then they said, you're right to the Brits, we, we had trouble in Italy. Patton had said that all along. He was completely shut out of all planning for overlord, in fact, it was adding insult to injury, where he was in command of a shadowed army, what the Germans called Army Group Patton, 
where he just raced around in a car all up and down from Scotland all the way to Wales with horn blaring, so everybody thought he was going to invade at Calais, and then four panzer divisions would be held in reserve waiting for invasion Patton, which never would come. And then the panzers would not be released to cut off the American beachhead. So he didn't participate in Normandy. Remember, after that brilliant landing, we, at least outside of Omaha Beach, we were ossified, calcified for about 40 days. We lost more in the next two weeks than we did in the, uh, in the landing, and we eventually had 80,000 casualties before we broke out of the Bocage on July 28th with Operation Cobra. Even then, when Patton's Third Army was operational, Bradley tried to stop the publicity or the release of news accounts of it. I'm not suggesting that he was mild and mannered and polite about this. He said things that were absolutely insane. I mean, he said, Brad, just point me in the right direction and the smoke's gonna, you're not gonna even see me when I'm gonna, I'll be gone all the way to the Rhine. Said things like that all the time. But the, again, the point was to take a civilian conscript group of young men and make them into an army that could stand up to people who had been fighting on the Eastern Front for four years against the toughest soldiers in the world. When you start to look at some of those uh, German armored divisions, Panzer Lehr Division, and you see the type of equipment, 88 millimeter, Panther, Tiger, one and two tanks, it's amazing that we could stand up to them. And that was Patton's idea. So they assigned him the furthest south uh, position in the advance toward Germany, and that would, if you take a map and draw a line on it, it would go into Czechoslovakia, not Germany. That was by intent, but most importantly, they asked him to take Brest, which is, if you look at the map from Normandy, he would have to turn around and go the opposite direction. And he was not designated to go really in the first month east at all. Of course, you know Patton, what he did. He took one-third of his army and went north, and he went one west, and then he headed east. And in a series of orders that were overridden, he, he said to... Uh, General John Wooden Grove, take Brest now. And they were a day away and Bradley stopped it. And of course, you know what happened after that. Brest was heavily fortified. It took us about two months. We had about 40,000 casualties and the port was never used until October. It was a complete waste of time. When he did go east, he soon was able, after the breakout, to go about 40 miles a day. He went 400 miles by uh, the middle of se uh, first week in September. When we got to Argentina in the Falaise Fillets pocket, there was the entire army group west. 300,000 Germans were advancing toward uh, the Atlantic while Patton was coming up to the rear in hopes of meeting the Canadians, and Hitler would not let von Klug retreat, and it looked like the war would be over. All we had to do was close the Falaise pocket. And Omar Bradley said, you will not do that because you'll, I'd rather have a round shoulder than a broken neck. We have to have an escape route for some of them. And uh, Patton said, oh, hell, I'll meet the Canadians, I'll meet the Brits, and if the Brits get in my way, I'll push them all the way to Dunkirk. Well, you, can, you can't say that. And so <laughs> Monty will never close it. Well, it was never closed for seven days. It was heavily bombed. 10,000 Germans were killed. Most of the equipment was lost, but 
about 155,000 Germans escaped, about 10 divisions, two of which were rearmored and we dropped, Montgomery did, the 101st, the 82nd, and the 1st uh, British Parachute Division right on top of them, basically, in the Arnheim uh, Market Garden. So when General Modell was ready, uh, defeated us and destroyed Monty's plan to leapfrog in, most of those troops had been in the fillet's pocket. When he got past Paris, he, he begged to close another gap, another encirclement on the eastern side of the Seine River. He was not listened to. He said that he had too few troops. And then he headed back into the Lorraine, and on September 2nd, his daily allotment, think of this, 400,000 gallons of gasoline, he got 15,000 gallons. Part of it was because the operation was conceptually flawed. There, there was not enough supplies to get from the beaches three or 400 miles into Germany uh, and support uh, about 700,000 troops, Canadian, American, and British. And part was that Eisenhower had made, I think, a disastrous decision by redirecting most of the supplies of the U.S. 3rd and 1st Army uh, in the month of uh, September 1944 to Montgomery to do this market garden bit when he didn't close the estuaries at the uh, harbors at, harbor at Antwerp. Had we got Antwerp, nobody would have had problems with supplies. The net result is Patton stayed 45 days without fuel and ended up in a World War I slugfest, which wasn't his forte around Metz. And finally, when he, in March, when he went across the Rhine with the First Army to his north, the rest is pretty much history. He captured about 350,000 prisoners and was all, he went 300 miles in two weeks, and that was the end of the war. He did tell Eisenhower, uh, I can take Berlin, and Ike said, we're not going to lose 300,000. That's how much we think the Russians will lose. They lost 170,000 men. And he said something that was very pressing. He said, they will lose that many. But when the Germans see Americans coming, they'll be all too happy to surrender to us and not go into gulags or be killed. And he was not allowed to take uh, Berlin. And I think that had repercussions. So all of these decisions that I talked about where I think he was right had repercussions. We lost an inordinate amount of people in, in Italy. We never got into Austria. The whole idea of Churchill's soft underbelly going into Europe or going through the Ljubljana Gap was a failure. We didn't, when the war ended, American troops were still in Italy. I don't know what the purpose of the Sicily campaign was. It was to be a stepping stone into Italy. You go through history all the way back to Hannibal, and no army has ever invaded Sicily and gone into northern, uh, invaded Italy and gone into northern Europe successfully by taking Sicily. You usually have to go to Sardinia or Corsica and go across or cut off somebody or go from the north-south. So those, those entire campaigns, I think, were flawed. The Normandy campaign would have been, I think we could have said it could have been over in September 1944 had we closed the gap or had we tried to close it again at the Seine. His greatest moment, of course, was during the Battle of the Bulge. Patton was finally given gasoline. He was on the offensive, and von Rundstedt did not, called the von Rundstedt offensive, but it was not really his idea. It was Hitler's mad idea that we had two green divisions in the First Army, and if he took a 250,000 man salient and 
broke through. He could separate the Americans from the British. There would not be overall command. He could go to the Meuse River and then maybe, just maybe go to Antwerp and then have some type of private deal with the British or us and say, let's just call it off. But he exhausted all of, most of the reserves. The problem was if you were one of 50,000 US troops in that pathway and you woke up for 10 days every morning and it was snowy and you had no air support when 90% of the aircraft in the sky for the last 60 days had been American or British, and suddenly you were looking at battle-hard veterans and they had, as I said, tigers and panthers, you were gonna die or be captured. 80,000 Americans are. Patton saw that happening and when he went to the meeting with Eisenhower at Verdun, he knew what was going to happen, that somebody had to cut off the assailant. He had already told his staff, We've got to turn around three entire divisions. I mean, that's 45,000 men and turn them in the opposite direction in 24 hours. So it was his greatest moment. It was very theatrical. He went to the meeting and Eisenhower, I don't know how we're going to stop these guys. They're going to take over Bastogne. They may get to the moose. And he said to announce to Bradley and to Montgomery and to Eisenhower, I can turn three divisions and I can cut them off. And he said, George, that'll take two weeks. And he said, I, I'll go out and give this signal on the phone and they will start in 24 hours. And that's exactly what they did. The tragedy of that is, of course, he argued vehemently that the way to stop a bulge is not to go at a diagonal and push the nose back. It's to take a chance and cut it off at the base and allow a few more casualties at the tip, but therefore destroy the entire invasion. Of course, that was considered too reckless, and we didn't do that. And that battle went all the way into February, and we lost more men after Bastogne than before. What I'm getting at is that there's a pattern here of somebody that has undeniable experience, preparation, and natural genius who understands the horrific nature of war and bothers the people uh, that command him, and yet sequentially or time and time again, when he is not given a billet or an appointment or a promotion befitting what he's earned on the battlefield, people die. And yet, the way that the system or the therapeutic society justifies that is that he slapped a soldier. Germans, of course, were bewildered by this. I mean, it is a little mythical. The Germans knew of Patton. I don't think the movie is quite right that he was canonized by the Germans. Mostly after the war, they sort of changed their views. They called him a cowboy and kind of reckless. But the point I'm making is that it is true that a number of German intelligence officers wouldn't believe that somebody of his of his talent would be relieved for slapping a couple of soldiers when German, German officers killed 25,000 soldiers in World War II, shot them for cowardice, or had them ordered shot. And so this brings up finally to conclude, uh, I entitled this talk The Tragic Nature, and I think Patton is symbolic of a problem that all Western societies deal with since the Greeks, that the advent of civilization is a wonderful thing. It creates leisure. It creates material wealth, luxury. It's civilization. It's not tribalism, it's not barbarism. But in that process, we become tame. And yet the world around us is not tame. And we don't quite know how to justify using violence against people who want to kill us. This sounds very contemporarily relevant, I think all of you know in the war against terror. And so from time to time, we see these fossilized memories of our past, and we bring them out of the proverbial closet, and we say, help us. 
Curtis LeMay, the B-29 program doesn't work. I know it's safe for our flyers at 30,000 feet, but they're, they're, the bombs are drawing off, falling off top. Well, you go down 5,000 with napalm, that'll cure it. Oh my God, you're gonna burn people alive? I'll get rid of the industry. Or Matthew Ridgway, I'm gonna let them come in and then I'm gonna surround them with napalm and I'm gonna blast them and it's gonna be winter and they're gonna, they're gonna regret they ever went into Korea. Or Sherman, this is the plantation of Hal Cobb. This is the guy who said that 250,000 Confederate soldiers were superior to us. Burn his plantation. Oh, Mao, he burned, he burned a southern plantation. And so we, when we see somebody like Patton, and, and you can see it in our culture, uh, throughout our culture, it's just not military. That was what made John Ford famous that if you're Ethan, Allen, Allen, uh, Ethan Edwards excuse me, in the searchers and you want to find a small girl and you're dealing with some pretty tough Native American tribes, you want somebody with a dubious past. We're not quite told what he was, maybe a Quantrell Raider, John Wayne, and he, he's, you don't know whether he's going to kill Natalie Wood or not, but he has the skills that both ensure that he's going to bring her back, but as you remember, once she's back, he opens the door and walks out. You don't want a guy like that there any more than you want Gary Cooper in high noon to stay around after he's done what you have to do, shoot four people in the street. You don't want the Magnificent Seven in the village anymore. I remember uh, that famous Yul Brenner and, and uh, Steve McQueen said, well, I guess uh, they're happy. And he said, they'll even be happier when we leave. <laughs> and I'll just finish by saying that this is not a new phenomenon that we we sometimes misdiagnose talent throughout all aspects of American society. I did make a promise, I just want to interrupt, that I wasn't going to mention the name Donald Trump in this talk, but you can see that this person has certain obnoxious characteristics and certain skill sets that bring results, and you can guarantee that after we are the beneficiaries of the results, He's not going to be on PBS in 10 years with ex-presidents shooting the breeze. It's just not going to happen. It's going to be persona non grata. And I'll just finish by the, when pre-civilized Greece was making this transition to the city-state, especially to radical democracy, there were people who saw the same phenomenon. One of the great minds of the Western uh, literary canon Sophocles. In a series, he, he wrote 113 plays. We have seven extant, but in a series of plays, he looked at this archetype of the oligarchic aristocratic class that had all of these anti-democratic skills, and you, you needed them. And it was right in the middle some of the plays, the letter plays of the Peloponnesian Wars. I'm thinking here of Philoctetes, Ajax, Antigone. But he makes these characters come out, and by every measure of talent and courage and bravery, they they excel, and yet they all end up badly because to reward them for those very characteristics would be a referendum on your own society. And I think that's a dilemma we all have to appreciate. I'm not asking us to change our views, but to every once in a while look in the corners and when we see dark people, maybe they're not so dark after all. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Hansen. We now have time for a few questions. Please make your way to the microphone if you have a question. 
Uh, Dr. Hansen, thank you very much. Excellent presentation. Uh, the one element of patent that I've always wanted to get more information on is right before his death, he got into more trouble because he wanted to invade Russia. And he wanted to arm the Germans in the camps and push all the way to Moscow because he said it'll avoid problems in the future. Uh, can you comment on it? Well, remember that his, I think his name was, they called him Jeep Sansa. His, his regular chauffeur had been uh, transferred home after the war. So he had a new driver, and the new driver wasn't a skill. And the three people who were with the driver, there were Patton and two others, they had superficial injuries. So the fact that he hit the glass partition was kind of a freak accident and he was on his way home. The reason that these conspiracy theories arose was because two things. He'd been relieved by Eisenhower for a phone call he had with Walter Bedell Smith, and in, in it he said, my God, we've got the people here. They're all over here, and the Russians are natural killers, and we went to war supposedly to free Eastern Europe from Nazis, and now we're gonna enslave it. So and he said stuff. I don't know how serious he was, but that help get him. And then he said another thing. They said, you've got too many Nazis working for you. He says, you know, like Democrats or Republicans. When Republicans come in, they can't get rid of all the Democrats out of the civil service. How can I get rid of these guys? And he said it in such a way that was callous. So his main argument was that, um, that Bolshevism, communism, uh, after the war would be as ex existential a threat to the United States as Nazi Germany, but he had greater respect for, not uh, admiration, but respect for Russian military prowess and capability than Germany because of their population and industry. So he was terrified of T-34 tanks and the ruthlessness of the Soviet army. They had, remember, lost 11 million soldiers and 9 million civilians, 20 million people. And he thought any, any regime that could survive that would, was terrifying. So I don't think that, I think he was right in the diagnosis, but America was in no psychological position in May when we were still fighting the Japanese and we were still a nominal ally of Russia and we were trying to flatter the Russians so they would, we didn't know if the bomb was going to be work or if it worked it would bring a surrender. And, we didn't believe LeMay could end it through air power, so we thought we were going to have to get the Soviet Union to help us. Dr. Hansen, you talked a, a bit about the therapeutic society that we live in, and you gave a few examples in more recent times about how it seems to have advanced a bit. Do you think it could get to the point, I mean, Patton himself, you gave many examples in which he was ridiculed and attacked. Do you think it could ever get to the point where we would turn to someone like him again? Well, I mean, in the first Gulf War, you could see that Arnold, uh, I mean, General Schwarzenegger thought he was going to play that role. You remember? <laughs> Not Schwarzenegger. <laughs> <laughs> I've been hanging around Al Philip and my Austrian. Uh, <laughs> but uh, there were people in the first Gulf War and the second Gulf War that wanted to play that role. But if you look at both those wars, I mean, after the so-called highway of death, it wasn't really a highway of death, as the media said. And then during the so-called armistice with Saddam, we let them have helicopters. They butchered. It was a disaster. We didn't have anybody who said 
the more the Imperial Guard uh, is given a reprieve, the more innocent people are going to be killed, and therefore we have to destroy them. We, we just didn't do that. So it's, it's, it's getting harder as a society becomes more leisured and more materially enriched to find people from more pre-civilized past, because that's what war is. It's pre-civilized. And so I, I kind of worry about that. And I'm, we're, we're all experiencing a war that started in 2001. It's been 19 years in Afghanistan. We're told by this whole array of experts all the reasons that we have, I, and I supported the initial war, but I think I counted, I wrote an article once, there were 23 different reasons I was told we had to be in Afghanistan. Nobody said we're going to win the war, and, or there's no substitute for victory. So I don't know what Libya was about. Uh, I don't know what the Syria thing was. Iraq, we kind of won the war, but then we pulled out. So it's hard. It's very hard to, to see that it's not the generals. The generals are representations of, of us. And there were people coming out of the Depression who were impoverished that didn't have the luxury to be therapeutic. And so Patton was the most popular general. The reason he was so successful was he had broad public support. The parents of the soldier he slapped wrote a letter and said that, I think it was wrong what you did, but boy, we're not going to criticize you. You're saving lives. I just don't think that would happen again. So the general today, and I think General Petraeus was a very good general, but it's more of an intellectual with a PhD rather than a blood and guts type of person. Or, or I don't think you'll see people like Grant or Sherman again, or Lee. Not, I think if a general said today, uh, the new, just imagine the new command, theater commander in CENTCOM went over to Afghanistan. He had a press conference. He said, I'm going to win, beat those sons of bitches. And they'd say, the Taliban, sons of bitches? That's too simplistic. You know. <laughs> so I, I just don't think it's going to happen. What? Uh, Dr. Hansen, thank you for coming. Yeah. Uh, Question? <laughs> and I'd also like to say on behalf of my father, who specifically told me to tell you that he's read just about every word you've ever written. Um, but I specifically wanted to ask, sort of like you talked about how Patton was clearly you know, strategically sound in a lot of his thinking and, you know, like sort of seeing what was happening on the Eastern Front and just the brutality of the Nazis is we got to go in and, you know, make the other poor bastard die for his country. So sort of like you talk about is just feeling, you know, Democrat, democratic societies get kind of soft is, you know, was that so ingrained and sort of the Allied High Command having to play all the politics of the reasons of, you know, and the fact that he was abrasive, um, you know, all of the... Yeah, sorry, so just all of, why exactly was the fact that he was clearly strategically sound, like, putting away? So, like, was it really just to the fact that people made, he made people a little uncomfortable because he, you know, he acknowledged that we were going to have to be violent to win the war? Well, we know from his own war as I knew it that he made faces in the mirror. A lot of it was show, and the, the, they weren't, ivory, uh, they weren't pearl, they were ivory-handled guns. He had that weird horn on his Jeep with the placards, polished his helmet. All of that was a, an image to show people that he was, uh, you know, he'd give these speeches, you know, I don't, nobody ever died for their, nobody ever won a war by dying for your country. You kill the SOB, not dying. And he gave a terrible speech. 
maybe effective, but it was frightening when he said, all of you wounded should be very, this was in Boston of all places after, all you should be very happy because you didn't get killed. People get killed, never did any, you know, he's just trying to create this image of himself and the American army as the equivalent on the battlefield of the Germans and the Russians. And he had a lot of distinct disadvantages of doing that in the society. Uh, and then when he went out of character at the Lorraine campaign in Metz, he, he didn't have fuel and he had, a, 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 as I said, a World War I stagnant objective. He didn't do very well. So his idea was the Americans are growing up, they're young people, everybody works on a car. Germans don't, Russians don't. 1942, everybody knew how to take a part of Model A or Chevy. They like their frontier image, they're horsemen, they like to move, so you've got to adopt those natural tendencies and have armor outflanking thrust with air support, forget the flanks, circle around, confuse the enemy, don't lose a lot of people, bam, bam. And that's, that was, he tried to craft a strategic doctrine of war that he felt was compatible with the American character as far as he could do it. I think he did a pretty good job. In comparison to people that had no idea of this, Hodges had no idea of this. Mark Clark would never think like this. Bradley would never think. Eisenhower's chief worry was how I'd keep the coalition together. He did a good job. But they'd always say, you know, when Patton said, I can move three divisions and save Bastogne, and Eisenhower said, careful now, Patton. Your reputation hasn't been too good lately. He said, I think it's pretty good. How, can you imagine the Supreme Commander telling that to somebody who's just offered a way to save an entire uh, division? So it was constant, and it, it wore him out. It was constant ankle-biting, bureaucratic, deep state. And he, he himself was a throwback to a pre-civilized mentality, an aristocratic mentality where he felt that rich people who were well-educated and knew how to ride horses and play polo and sail should be given certain latitudes. And that was an anathema to a guy who grew up really poor like Omar Bradley, you know. Uh, Thank you for joining us again on campus, Dr. Hansen. Throughout this series, I can't help but wonder how the same qualities seem to make a person both famous and infamous. I'm curious if this is perhaps a curse of success or just a factor of human nature. Well, I think you're quite correct in your general observation. Now I'm quoting the seventh century BC poet Hesiod, that the most powerful of all human emotions is envy, what they call thanos. And it's true that the more successful person, that's what Greek ostracism and the democratic culture created, ostracize somebody not because he did something wrong, because everybody knows who he is. So we don't like people who do things that we can't in a democratic, pluralistic society. But I think in this case, we have a sense as a democratic, affluent 21st century, as I think Barack Obama summed it up best, the arc, he always used this term, the arc of history is bending. And it was always as if things are getting better, 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 and we're gonna get more humane and humane, and we're changing human nation. We're, we have more colleges, there's more kids in the Ivy League, we've got all this technology, and we're getting better and better and better. And we're gonna eliminate people like a patent. And I don't think we are getting better. I don't think there's any proof in history that we all are, other than technology, even that is up and down, that we're getting into a moral 
human nature is human nature. And so these people who show us and remind us of that, uh, they're, they're pretty scary people. I think when I, I broke my, I won't break my promise, when that person that starts with a T said, <laughs> we don't want these animals there, the people in the neighborhood were relieved. But the people who had private estates or gates were shocked, like Nancy Pelosi, who's got a nice wall to state in Napa. So we've created in our own society people that have, I don't, I don't want to be too deprecatory, but they have pretensions about human nature, but they're never subject to the ramifications of their own ideology. I, I'm going to tempt you to break your, your uh, promise because uh, I'm sure you heard, a, uh, there was a recent report that uh, Rex Tillerson and General Mattis uh, brought President Trump to the Pentagon to brief him on, uh, to educate him on uh, the importance of, of America's uh, uh, alliances and, and so forth. And the, the report came out that at one point Trump got so angry that he yelled at the generals and said, you're a bunch of losers or something to that effect. And, uh, you know, and lo and behold, after he got in, he changed the rules of engagement, and we we beat ISIS and so forth. But just wondering if that's another example of what you're describing. We have an oath at the Hoover Institution. We're not allowed to speak publicly about another senior fellow. So I have great respect for General Mattis. But in a larger uh, sense, I think what Trump was trying to say is that he values optics, he's real reality TV and ratings. Remember, every time he gets mad at CNN, he doesn't just say that CNN is fake news. He always said, low ratings. <laughs> or he says, have you seen that guy? He looks really bad on TV. <laughs> so in his way of thinking, he's practical. And when you look at Afghanistan, it's bad ratings and bad optics. But he's also got a pre-civilizational animal cunning. And how, why wouldn't you? How could you succeed in the Manhattan real estate market? <laughs> Dealing with crooked unions, crooked politicians, crooked, crooked community. You got, one, you got the, uh, the builders union, you got Al Sharpton, you got Bill de Blasio. How do you deal with all and build a skyscraper? So he has certain skill sets. Uh, and those skill sets are not compatible with administrative, whether it's civilian or military parlance, and um, the way you solve problems. And I guess the only way we could reconcile that paradox is that you wouldn't want a government of Trumps or Pattons or those types of people, but you might want one or two of them at, on occasion when the system finds itself uh, incapable of, of, of doing things. So if you haven't had workers' wages increases in 12 years, or you haven't had 3.5% unemployment in 50 years, or African-American unemployment in seven years, then maybe people, half the country decided I'm willing to put up with the President of the United States saying that Jerry Nadler is a sleazebag. <laughs> and, he, and then, I was really struck uh, just as a fill-up to that, I was really struck when I hear people talk that voted for him that talk about him. It reminds me so much about reading when I was researching a book on Patton, 
uh, news reports about Patton. Because usually you hear, well, I really like what he did. I just wish he wouldn't say that. I just wish he wouldn't tweet. And they would say things about Patton as, wow, I, I really like the idea that he, he beat Montgomery to Messina, but why do you have to do that? And the same thing with LeMay. Why did he... Why did he do that? Curtis LeMay created the Strategic Air Command, essentially he inherited it, but it was nothing. And when he left it, it had 200,000 people. It was the most sophisticated, deadly air force in the world. And the reward for that was being caricatured by uh, George C. Scott or Buck Turgenson, both characters in Dr. Strangelove is a mad nut. And he was anything but a nut. He's a very sophisticated, educated person. Omar Bradley couldn't speak a word of French. You would never know it. And he had a very beautiful cabin with upholstery that he towed out in the battlefield that was his personal. Patton slept on the ground. Patton walked around and made sure everybody had dry socks so he wouldn't get trench foot, but it didn't fit the image. Bradley was a GI general, but in fact, he, when people went to on leave into England, and they were from the First Army, Hodges Army, they would lie and say they were Third Army because they thought they would get better dates from the nurses. <laughs> I don't know if we have. We have time for one more question. Yeah. First of all, thank you again, Dr. Henson, for speaking. Um, you were talking about Patton's strategies and approach to things and how different it was from pretty much every other general of World War II. What would you say was the reason for that? Do you think, I mean, he was schooled at VMI like most of our other leaders were, but was there something like his early days in the military, or do you think that's just how he was as a person that caused him to approach things so differently? Well, his preeminent biographer, Carl de Esti, said he had a number of serious concussions, traumatic brain injuries. <laughs> He used it in the context because there was a period in his life where he did some despicable things like date his stepniece, or I shouldn't say date, have an affair while he was married. He had a wonderful wife. But uh, there were certain elements. He did believe in reincarnation. And he did believe that the Patton family, his, his uh, grandfather was killed in the Civil War. So he, he had this idea that he had a destiny, and he kept saying, I'm not going to be cheated out of my destiny. And he went into a severe depression when he was not allowed to fight in the Pacific. So he had this idea that he was exceptional in his knowledge of war. And he would say again and again, when they talked about closing the fillets gap, or taking Palermo and then making a right turn, or having amphibious, he'd always say to uh, his staff, I don't know where I got this idea. I woke up at two in the morning with this idea, and, he, and I wrote it down. And then he would give meticulous diagrams of which particular uh, battalions, brigades he would move. And so he believed at least he had some kind of artistic inspiration about war. I think that's why I think it was Destiny named uh, his patent a genius for war. There was something about him mystical, and uh, the movie tried to, to bring that out, maybe exaggerated, but. People around him thought that he was not stable mentally. And he would go fly off into, he was completely unaware of the effect sometimes he had on people who had control over his destiny. So if he was on maneuvers and right in front of 
Eisenhower and Bradley, he went over and screamed at a uh, lieutenant colonel, said, you son of a bang, you did this, you, you're, you're gonna get men killed, you're not, and then he'd walk by and smile back, thinking that Eisenhower was impressed. And Eisenhower later would say, this guy is not fit for high command. So he, he was sui generis. It's, it's, we haven't seen anybody, we saw Sherman like him, and I think there were elements like him as uh, we heard today in MacArthur. MacArthur had sort of the same, some of the same traits, although he was much more institutionalized than Patton and much more politically savvy, I think, at least sometimes. Is that it then, or one more? Thank you, Dr. Hansen. Thank you.